think I'd probably just assume sing another 30 minutes and go home. Appreciate very much the songs that have been called, especially that that last last song. Um, that that is the theme of the gospel church is to repeat the story o'er and o'er. Grace so full and free. It has to be the story repeated over and over because there's no other story. There, there's no other speaking that will speak to the to the hearts and minds of God's people other than the story of grace so full and free. This morning, though, we're going to kind of start with a bit of a negative topic. And that is we're going to look a little bit at the book of Hosea. I don't know if we will conclude all of our thoughts on this book this morning. Uh, we may take a couple of weeks on it. I don't know. I guess we'll find out next Sunday. Um, Hosea is a relatively short book. Uh, you can read it in about 45 minutes. Um, actually, if you if you do what I do so often, I will have Alexander Scorby on recording, and I'll play him reading it to me while I read the book with it. And when doing that, you can kind of set on your computer or on your phone a, a higher speed a little bit and read through it a little bit faster, cause you to pay a little better attention sometimes. Um, at least it does to me anyways. The book of Hosea is not a book you want to read if you're happy. It's also not a book you want to read if you're sad. It is a if someone if someone asked me how how would I define or describe the book of Hosea? I would say that it is a vile declaration of the atrocious conduct and the abhorrent character of an ungrateful and backslidden nation. It is a black and dark tapestry that is laid over the entire nation of Israel. Now, at this time, the nation of Israel, as we know it, has been divided into the ten northern tribes and the two southern tribes. The two southern tribes uh, primarily go by the name of Judah. The ten northern tribes go by the name of Israel. But the name Ephraim is used interchangeably to, de to describe and speak about that nation. But for the purposes of, of reading this book and understanding it, I, I don't care how you apply Israel to the ten tribes or to the nation as a whole. It doesn't matter. The, the charges are the same. That it is a black tapestry that is laid over the entire nation of Israel. And yet the patchwork of that tapestry that covers their ungratefulness is sewn together by the crimson cord of the grace of Christ. God is fed up with the nation of Israel. 
when you read through Hosea. 34 times you come across the concept of whoredom, adultery, lewdness, strange lovers, and things of that nature. I didn't even count the number of times idolatry is mentioned because that essentially is what is under consideration when you read this. 37 times the, nation, the, the tribe of Ephraim is addressed personally. Out of those 34 times, though, that the concept of adultery or whoredoms or things like that are addressed, the majority of them are in the first half of the book. It just kind of starts out that way in the first chapter. I mean, they don't sneak into it. They don't, they don't creep into it. They just run right into it, verses 1, 2, and 3. And the Lord lets you know he is just fed up and he is tired of this nation. And yet, here a little and there a little. The kindness of God just continually creeps out and you catch a glimpse of just how good God is to not only Israel, but to us on a daily basis. This is one of those books that you need to be uh, an active observer when you read it. Turn with me to uh, before we get into Hosea, turn with me to uh, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 23. I'd like to show you in Matthew 23 how that the scribes and Pharisees uh, were what we have described in the last few weeks. They were uh, disconnected observers in history. We've, we've made it a point in the last few weeks to, to remind folks that when you read history, don't be a disconnected observer. The scribes and Pharisees were disconnected observers. And I'll read to you this in Matthew chapter 23, uh, beginning with verse 29. Matthew 23, verse 29. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and garnish the sepulchres of the righteous. And say, if we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Uh, people have a way of romanticizing the past. And they talk about the good old days and how much better it was way back then. And the reality is, those days really weren't all that good. And if we had have been back in Jesus' day, we would have been the ones crucifying him. We would not have been gathered around his cross defending him. Don't kid yourself. These scribes and Pharisees say, oh, had we been back in the olden days, we would not have participated in, in the killing of the prophets. Oh, perish the thoughts. And, and part of their actions to this were that they would go around and they build these elaborate tombs to these old prophets and they'd garnish these things. They, they paint them real nice and decorate them real well. They romanticize the dead fathers. And we do that now ourselves. 
If some aged brother from the past did anything good for us, well, they're just holiness. But if they're alive today, you better watch them. And the reality is, is both dead or alive. We all have the potential to do as they would have done and been partakers with him in the blood of the prophets. Jesus says unto them, Wherefore ye be witnesses unto yourselves that ye are the children of them which killed the prophets. Fill ye up then the measure of your fathers. You know, he's saying you, you're their children. The children more than likely are going to act like the fathers. And the reason that he says that you're going to fill up the measure of your fathers, the reason that he reminds them that had you been back in those days, you would have done the same thing, he goes on to say this. Ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them ye shall kill and crucify, and some of them shall ye scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, son of Berechias, whom ye slew between the temple and the altar. The Pharisees were disconnected readers from history past. They, they felt like history didn't apply to them. Had they been back there, history would have been different. This is why we have such a, a problem with this arrogant generation that exists nowadays. Socialism hasn't worked. It's never worked. But this arrogant generation that comes up nowadays and says, yes, it hasn't worked because I haven't done it. The Pharisees themselves did not learn from history. Would you say that the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees were a welcoming, uh, a welcoming group of religious leaders? In, in reading through the Gospels, just what we know in their life uh, confronting Christ and the apostles, would you say that they were a warm and welcoming group of individuals? I hope you're saying no. You know, their accusation against Christ, one of the greatest accusations they had against him was that he eated with, he eated with, eateth with sinners. He ate with sinful people. He communed with people who were lowlifes. Now, it didn't mean that he approved of what they did, but he did interact with them and he did teach them for his purpose in interacting and teaching is to teach somebody there's a better way of life. We would say that the scribes and Pharisees were a bit of a standoffish group. Wouldn't you say that? A sort of a high and mighty group. Felt like they were better than everybody else. Is that, is that a fair assessment of what we might could gather from the Gospels? Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 65. In Isaiah 65, I'd like to begin reading with verse 2. In Isaiah 65 and verse 2, notice what the Lord says here. He says, I have spread out my hands all the day unto a rebellious people which walketh in a way 
that was not good after their own thoughts. One of the most uh, heart-wrenching things in life is to sort of stand helplessly by and watch somebody walk in a way that is not good because they will not listen. They walk in a way that is not good after their own thoughts. I I realize that in each one of us there is a spirit of independence. I realize that in each one of us, uh, as we are growing up, uh, that there is a desire or a need in us to feel like our life matters, to feel like our life is important, and to feel like that what we do in life uh, is a good and beneficial thing. And it's a dreadful thing, though, to look at somebody who even at 30 or 40 or even 50 has not learned to listen. I am that way myself sometimes. I know you find that hard to believe. But the Lord says all the day long he has uh, stretched out his hands unto a rebellious people that walketh in, in a way that is not good after their own thoughts. A people that provoketh me to anger continually to my face. Can you think of the, uh, uh, of the arrogance of someone who would stand in the face of God and provoke him to anger? You think of someone who goes up and pokes a bear with a stick. Or someone who goes up and kicks a dog. The dog bites him. Now suddenly the dog has to be put down. No, if the person who kicked him is the one who initiated, maybe the person needs to be put down. Ooh, don't say that. Hold on. Uh, This is the nation, though, that's under consideration in Hosea that is provoking him to anger continually to his face. There's nothing more disgusting and heartbreaking than to see this in a family. You know, when you're standing at Walmart or something, there's a child in the toy aisle, and the the father or the parent says, it's time to go, and the child says, no, I don't want to go. And there's this knock-down, drag-out fight in the toy aisle from the child. Who is provoking the parent to anger right in their face. That's the picture that the Lord is drawing here in Isaiah. Notice what he says here. He says, The people that provoketh me to anger continually to my face, that sacrificeth in gardens, and burneth incense upon altars of brick. Now, You may be a little puzzled as to why the Lord is upset with the nation of Israel sacrificing gardens and burning incense on altars of brick. What does it matter? It's an altar that we've erected to the Lord, and what we're doing on the altar is also to the Lord. What does it matter that it's an altar of brick? Anybody got that question? Is that question being asked, or am I the only one asking? Am I answering a question that's not being asked? Let's ask the question then, if we don't know to ask this question, why is the Lord upset with them that they're sacrificing or they're offering incense on altars of brick? Glad you asked. Exodus chapter 20. 
In Exodus chapter 20, one thing we know about uh, Exodus 20 is it's uh, one of the two places that the Ten Commandments are laid out to Israel. And after he delivers the Ten Commandments in the first half of the chapter, we now come to the establishment or the erection of altars in the last few verses of the chapter. This is Exodus chapter 20, verse 24. And what is the first three words of that, or first four words of that? An altar of what? Earth. See that? This is the Lord commanding. You want to set, you want to set me up an altar? You know what I want? I want an altar of earth. Just drag up a pile of dirt. Make it big enough that you can put your sacrifice or whatever it is on it. But that's all I want. Nothing fancy. Nothing showy. Just an altar of dirt. Well, <clears throat> and thou shalt make unto me, and thou shalt sacrifice there on thy burnt sacrifice. Now, what about if you're in a place where there isn't much dirt? Maybe you're in a place where there's not much loose dirt, and it's nothing but sand. Sand is not very good. What are we to do then? This is kind of my speculation between these two verses, because there's going to also be an addendum to this in verse 25. He says, and if thou make me an altar of, what's that next phrase? Altar of stone. Still not got the brick yet, have we? There's a reason for that. If you make me an altar of stone, thou shalt not build it of hewn stone, for if thou lift up thy tool upon it, thou hast polluted it. Oh, what are we talking about now? Uh, if you're just around a, bunch, a place where there's a bunch of rocks, take the rock, set it in place. Don't scrape the rock. Don't scratch the rock. Don't form the rock. Just set it in place. Don't fashion it. Just set it there. Now, the illustration that, that, is, that is used here is very applicable even in New Testament day because the Apostle Paul said that this gift of the ministry we had in earthen vessels. Your body is a house of earth and clay. And the Apostle Peter said that you, belonging to the house of God, are precious stones. What do we know about rocks and what do we know about bricks? Bricks all look the same. They come from a mold. You mix up the mixture, you pour it in a mold, you dump out the bricks, they all look alike. I got news for you. You and the church ain't all alike. The world out here screams about diversity though, don't they? The world out here just is eat up with the concept of diversity. We all got to be diverse. We all got to be different. But the moment that I start disagreeing with those who are different, I'm thrown under the bus for not conforming to the rest of the bricks. We've all got to accept the transgenders. We've all got to accept the sodomites. We've all got to accept the alternative lifestyles. You've been divorced 8, 10, 15 times. I'm supposed to just sit back and say, who cares? Who, Ray, are you in love now? It doesn't matter. But the moment I start disagreeing with those things, that's the moment that we get in trouble. I'm a comedian. My comedy show gets canceled. My TV show gets canceled. I might lose my job for disagreeing, but I thought we were all diverse. Yes, but we're all alike diverse. 
They had hewn out them altars of brick. Not that it's wrong to have a brick building, but that it is wrong, it is incorrect, for us to require all churches to sing out of this hymn book and start at this time and preach for this long, and the preacher has to preach this way. You with me? And we all have to have a handshake that does this thing, and we all have to belong to this association, and we all and we all have to do this, and we have to we all have to look the same. No, the only thing that we ever have to do the same is preach the right doctrine. That's the only thing that the Lord said, Thy watchmen in the plural shall lift up the voice. That's the only thing about us that needs to be and must be the same is what we believe about the Lord Jesus Christ and what we believe about salvation and what it took for God to save sinners. The peripheral things, whether we meet in a brick building or a wood building, doesn't matter. Whether you have a lunchroom or you have a table outside, doesn't matter. But what had Israel done? They had done what made them happy. And they've forgotten the Lord. One more verse here in Isaiah 55. Uh, 65. Isn't that what I said? 65, right? Isn't that, what I, isn't that where we're at? Here we go. Because uh, we're, we're talking about the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Back to what our original... Uh, complaint against them was. He says here uh, in verse 4, going on, he says, which remain among the graves and lodge in the monuments. That's a, that's, that's a weird phrase. They remain among the graves and they lodge in the monuments. Lodging is living, isn't it? They live among the monuments. That's, that's just a, a particular, a weird phrase to me. Uh, it seems like they a lot of people living in the past. I don't know. I'm just throwing that one out there because that, that wasn't my intent. My intent actually is verse 5. That they lodge among the monuments which eat swine's flesh and broth of abominable things is in their vessels which stay, which say, here we go, stand by thyself. Come not near me for I am holier than thou. These are a smoke in my nose. A fire that burneth all the day. The Pharisees very much had adopted that attitude, had they not. Stand by thyself. Come not near me. For I am holier. And I am confident that as human beings, there's a lot of us just like that. See, even even we as the church have a tendency to fall into the trap of the world around us. As we said earlier, the world screams about diversity, but then they crucify you when you actually are different. People in churches, people in families are different. 
and it's a detriment to you to demand that everybody in your family or in your church be just like you. Now, we want people to be holy. That's without question. We want people to do the right thing. That's without question. Uh, But if you're an introvert and you want all the extroverts to be introverts, that's perverted. If you're an extrovert and you want all the introverts to be extroverts, that's not going to work. In other words, you're probably not going to have an introvert who likes to sit at home by themselves be your pastor. They generally are not public speakers. And somebody who enjoys doing this probably will not enjoy just sitting and doing nothing. It's just the way it is. And the more you try and make everybody else just like you, the more all of us are going to be miserable. Because I'm not supposed to be like you. And you are not supposed to be like me. All of us are supposed to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what discipleship is. Discipleship is not me being like you and you being like me. Discipleship is one disciple setting Christ as the mark and marching towards it. Pharisees, though, had missed it. They had missed even this little thing. They said, had we been back there, we would not have done what they had done. And yet, they weren't back there, but what are they doing? They're doing what's being done here in this chapter. Interesting how how human beings miss that uh, about themselves. So, now, let's turn, uh, let's turn to the book of Hosea, though. Hosea is a hopeless book. It really is. It is a dreadful book when you read through it, you know, the first few times. For one of those reasons is, is there are some uh, there are some exciting words in it. There's some there's some words that grab your attention, as we said at the beginning of this. He just he starts out with the concept. Uh, of Israel having committed whoredoms in departing from the Lord. But after you read it through a couple of times, there should be some other things that jump out to you. But one of the things that really just jumps out to you is Hosea chapter 13 and verse 9. Hosea chapter 13, verse 9, uh, the Lord says, O Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself. You got problems, Israel, and guess what? It's your fault. The one thing that you have the most problems with stares at you every morning in the mirror. When the Lord says to Israel and to Ephraim and whoever in this book he is addressing, thou hast destroyed thyself, that's what the book of Hosea is about. It lays out uh, God's proof that our problems are not his fault. One of the things that he does in demonstrating this uh, to the nation of Israel is how he deals with Hosea. Uh, I, I I can speak to you and I can give you words 
and sometimes word pictures. And sometimes you can learn a little bit from what you hear. But it is true. It is this this is a fact. People can learn from what they hear, and people can learn from what they see. But people will learn from what they see and hear. See, when John the Baptist came, uh, was in prison for preaching Christ in, in Matthew 11, he sent his disciples to Christ and, and said unto him, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? And Jesus said to those disciples, You go and tell John again those things you do see and hear. I believe is, I believe is what it said here. I don't, don't let me mess that up. Let me, let me pause here for that. That's Matthew 11. I mess it up. The lesson is not learned. Let's let's start here. Uh, Matthew 11, verse 2. When John had heard in the prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples. He sent two of his disciples. Uh, excuse me, I'm sorry. Ooh, give me glasses. Verse 3, and said unto him, Art thou he that should come? Or do we look for another? Here it is. Jesus answered and said unto them, Go and shew John again those things which you do hear and see. It's not just things we've heard. These are not things we see across the street. These are things right here in our immediate presence. We're going to hear and we're going to see these things. And of course he says, uh, The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached unto them. And blessed is he whomsoever shall not be offended in me. Uh, that last phrase, the poor have the gospel preached unto them, that was a revolutionary phrase. When you have an Old Testament that is full of God's blessing on uh, God's blessing being seen on the abundance of wealth, Abraham, Job. Isaac, Jacob. Matter of fact, all the 12 patriarchs that came from Jacob. Uh, uh, Joseph being down in Egypt, second in command to the king, blessing that nation. Uh, you kind of get the idea that God is favoring the rich. And that's why when the rich young ruler comes to the Lord and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The Lord says, well, thou knows the commandments, right? And he lists all oh, four or five of them or so. And, and the rich young ruler says, well, I've, all these I've kept from my youth up. And Jesus said unto him, one thing thou lackest, go and sell that thou hast and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. He didn't tell him to, get, to sell everything you have, and then everything you get from that, give all that to the poor. He's just saying, you don't have to live so high and mighty in life. Sell a little bit of that. Live less yourself. Give to those who have less than you do. That's all it really says. What does your prosperity do for you if you're not helping somebody else, is what Jesus is saying. And it says the rich young ruler went away sorrowful, for he had great riches. He had things, excuse me, his things had him. And he didn't want to let go of his things. I agree that you cannot mandate a business to pay a certain amount of money for a minimum wage. You, you just can't do that. Because you cannot mandate a business to pay more than they are making. 
However, I do agree that businesses could pay, could pay more than they paid if you'd sell one of your five houses and four of your five cars and your yacht. I agree that when a man owns a business and runs a business, he has the right to eat the fruits of his labor. Even Solomon said that. But your stomach can only hold so much food as well as mine can. There's only so many cars that you can drive at one time. Now, I realize that this, this spreads out in the garden of Whedon right here. Because I realize every house you've bought paid, you know, it paid somebody to build it. I got you on that. And every car you've bought, it paid some factory somewhere. I, I realize that. But I think there also we all realize Psalm 73 says that man's eyes stand out with fatness. He, can, he has more than he can desire. It's like a child at Christmas. A child doesn't know what he wants for Christmas. Why? He's got 364 other days where he's getting stuff. And when he goes to Grandma's house and the presents are piled up, you know, this high, you barely see the top of the tree from it, does the child need that much junk? No, he doesn't. And we as adults don't need that much junk. You know? Oh, gracious. How in the world did I get off on all this? Uh, Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself. So people, people remember most of all what they see and hear. That's where we, that's, that's the rabbit we traced down that Hole in one land there for that one. And so he looks at his prophet Hosea and he tells him to do two things. Now, there may be, there may be some questions that you have as to whether these two things in Hosea are two separate events or it's the same event from two different perspectives. I don't have the answer for that. I, I think that these two events that he tells Hosea to do are two separate events. And, and I'll, I'll tell you why in a second. In Hosea chapter 1, the Lord tells Hosea in verse 2, the beginning of the word of the Lord by Hosea, and the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take unto thee a wife of whoredoms and children of whoredoms, for the land hath committed great whoredom departing from me. Now, if I were to tell you that you had done something wrong, that'd be one thing. But if I can show you you've done something wrong, that's something completely different, right? Um, it's easy, though, also to see the sins of other people, isn't it? Just sit back, as as Sonny Pyle says. I go to the I, he, he'd go to the store, he'd go to the mall, and he'd sit back and he'd just watch wildlife in its natural habitat. Just don't let them know you're watching them, but just sit there and watch them. But also give them the opportunity or the understanding that they're probably going to watch you. It's easy to point out the sins of other people, is it not? That's why the Lord said, take the, the tree out of your own eye before you get over here and try and pick out the speck in your brother's eye. But then the brother would say, well, no, pick out your own tree first. Yeah, but, you know, your log is hitting my log. You're in my way. You're bumping my head 
you know, with what's sticking out of your head, that we both need to recognize we both have problems. That that's kind of that's not to be overlooked in in that illustration that Jesus is talking about. It is easy to see the sins of other people if we could only see the sins of other people in ourselves. And and people have a big problem with that. People people cannot see themselves. The Pharisees could not see themselves. That that was the illustration that Jesus was giving um, when they said, you know, oh, we wouldn't have done that. And we just read from you Isaiah 65 and, and made, they may not have done that, but they, they're doing something else. People oftentimes think, well, I'm not doing that. So what I'm doing is better. But here's here's a problem that we all fall into that that our heart it's hard for our hearts to love what our hand is doing. Even if what our hand is doing is the right thing to be done. More on that in just a second. But he tells Hosea, he says, I want you to go and you want you to marry this woman who is a woman of Florida. And what she's going to do is she's going to bear unto him three children. Now, if you read Davis's dictionary on the Bible, they're going to tell you that many scholars, not sure if this is a real story or if it's allegory. John Gill even, I believe, presents this as this may be allegory, it may be a true story. I think this is a real story. You say, well, why would the Lord tell him to go marry a woman who is essentially going to cheat on him? One of the problems that people have with this is it takes a long time to bear children, especially three of them. Even if you had them back to back to back, you know, that's at least 30 months of constant pregnancy. People say nine months. It's not nine months. It's a complete nine months, which means it's 10 months, provided the child doesn't come late. Then it's 11 months. Or ten and a half, whatever it is. You got thirty months here, though, at least. If they come right on time, they could come earlier. The Lord's kind of dragging this out, isn't He? And then that's provided they come back to back to back. What if there is months or a year between the birth of the children? You're dragging it out even further. I think it's a real story, though, because that's what the Lord is getting across to us. Idolatry is not something that happens always overnight. And it's also not something that is realized overnight. It is something that has a tendency to take a hold on people, and it drags on for years and years and years. When Naomi and Elimelech in the book of Ruth uh, left uh, Bethlehem, left the house of bread because there was a time of famine and they went down and they journeyed into this uh, Moabite country. The Bible says they stayed there ten years. When the Ark of the, the Covenant was taken from Israel and taken by the Philistines and then wandered here and it went there, it was gone twenty years. When Israel wandered in the wilderness for their sin in Canaan, they wandered forty years. Very seldom did things happen overnight. 
or for a short period of time in the Bible. And I think that's why he uses a real life picture here. That he uses a situation that people are allowed to see for an extended period of time. That here is this man Hosea who is married to this woman Gomer. And he is so good and so gracious to her. And she is so slothful and so adulterous to him. And the illustration is God has been so overwhelmingly good to us. Why would we go anywhere else? Because even though the Hosea is a hopeless book for these wretched, defiled people. The hopeless have hope. It's amazing. What happens here is, is he, he, she, she bears him three children. And we won't go into the names of the three children. We may, I, I don't know if we'll do that at all. But the names, the names of two of them are, are wretched names. In other words, I think the illustration that he is giving to Hosea here is she's bearing these children, and then when you look at the names and what they mean, <clears throat> Hosea, they're not yours. You're raising somebody else's children. Anytime idolatry creeps into the church, or anytime it crept into Israel, they were essentially raising somebody else's child. False teaching doesn't come from God. It comes from the devil. Lies come from the devil. I'm tempted to kind of just go right into that with all the false teachings that I see in the world around me, but I don't want to muddy the rest of the day with that. But suffice it to say, if somebody says, well, where did you get that? Well, I got that out of the Bible. You sure did. Way out of the Bible because it ain't in it is what you want to say sometimes. Well, then the next thing that happens is you kind of gather from chapter 2 that he is telling these, uh, he's telling these children, no, you need to you say to your mother, repent of your whoredoms, repent of your iniquities, repent of your idolatries uh, because she is... She's not my wife and I'm not her husband. Now, that is, uh, that is chapter 2, uh, verse 2. Neither, uh, she is not my wife, neither am I her husband. Now, <clears throat> you say, well, does that, does that mean that Hosea has put Gomer away? Or does that just simply mean that they are not acting like it? I'll give you both arguments. Because whether a husband and a wife split up, they can split up in their marriage. They can live together as either friends or strangers and not act like they are husband and wife. You get the illustration, you get the picture. Then in chapter 3, here's what's happening. Chapter 3, then said the Lord unto me, Go yet, love a woman, beloved of her friend, yet an adulteress, according to the love of the Lord toward the children of Israel who looked to other gods and loved flagons of wine. So I bought her to me for 15 pieces of silver and for an omer of barley and for a half omer of barley. And said unto her, Thou shalt abide for me many days. Thou shalt not play the harlot. Thou shalt not be for another man. So will I also be for thee. Um, so here's what I said. Is this two stories? Or is this one story told from two different perspectives? I think it is the same. I think it's two stories. I think he's done with the first one. He says, 
Now I want you to go over here. I want you to join yourself to this other one. And guess what's going to happen? Same thing. The, the illustration that I kind of gathered from this is what, is what happened in the book of Genesis chapter 6. When the earth was filled with violence, the Lord flooded the earth. But he saved Noah and his family. He saved eight people. Put them in the ark. Flooded the earth. Started over with Noah. Where are we at today? Are we any better off today than we were before the flood? No, as a matter of fact, as soon as Noah got off the ark, everything went down. Noah gets drunk in his tent. When he wakes from his wine, he knows what his younger son had done unto him, and it's just a mess. Are we any better today than we were before the flood? No. So what's the Lord showing us? In, in Genesis 9, when the Lord uh, brought Noah out of the ark, Noah builds this, builds this altar, he offers sacrifice to the Lord, and the Lord smelled a sweet savor, and he said, I will not, he said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground anymore uh, for man's sake, for the imagination of man's heart is only evil from his youth. If the Lord destroyed the earth every time he got full of violence, there would be no end of his destroying the earth. There's not a single person on this planet that God could restart the planet with and be better off except Jesus Christ. That's where the whole thing twists, right there. That's where every bit of it stops. It doesn't start with man. It doesn't stop. It started with man. It doesn't stop, stop with man. It stops with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what multitudes don't see. Because in, in this book, there is... There is said to them over and over, the concept of repentance is laid out here for these hopeless individuals. Now, <clears throat> chapter 6, if you don't mind. Chapter 6. The people say, come and, this is verse 1, come and let us return unto the Lord. For he hath torn, and he will heal us. He hath smitten, and he will bind us up. After two days will he revive us, and the third day he will raise us up, and we will live in his sight. Then shall we know, if we follow on to know the Lord, his going forth is prepared as the morning, and he shall come unto us as the rain at the latter and former rain under the earth. Oh, what's happening here? This looks like repentance. Right? Because they say, come and let us return unto the Lord. I don't think that this is, I think this is shallow repentance. I think this is sort of repentance by the numbers. Come, let's return unto the Lord. Now, hold on, let me back, let me back up. <clears throat> Everything that they're saying is true. Everything that they are saying in this passage is true. Come, let us return unto the Lord, for he hath torn, and he will heal us. The one that has torn us, the one that has afflicted us, is the one that has to heal us. Uh, he that is smitten, he will bind us up. That is true. Uh, after two days he will revive us, the third day he will raise us up, and we shall live in his sight. That is certainly plausible. God that created the world in six days changed the landscape of the entire globe in 40 days. And redeemed his people in three days on the cross. 
is very capable of changing your situation in a moment of time when he gets involved. When the disciples were out on the boat trying to go from one side to the other and they struggled all night and toiled and rowing all night long until the fourth watch of the night, when Jesus came walking on the water unto them, the Bible says that when he was received into their boat, immediately they were at land. It is true. Everything that they have said is true. But it does not come true if you just follow along step one, step two, step three, step four. Listen to what the Lord says. O Ephraim, what shall I do unto thee? Verse four. O Judah, what shall I do unto thee? For your goodness is as a morning cloud, and as the early dew, it goeth away. Uh, the morning cloud goes away when what? The sun comes up. What happens to the, to the morning dew? It evaporates as soon as it gets hot. There are some people who only repent because they're in trouble. They're sorry they got caught. They're not sorry for what they did. Because notice what he says here in, uh, in verse 6. He says, For I desired mercy and not sacrifice for the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Uh, when we said earlier that I, it is so hard for our hearts to appreciate and love what our hand is doing, even if our hand is doing uh, what needs to be done, that is so true. It is so true in our life that it is hard for us to appreciate and love doing what's right, especially if doing what's right is inconvenient to us. In other words, it is right for us to come to church, right? If you're going to be here ready, you need to make preparations. Sometimes that starts on Saturday. Sometimes it starts on Friday. You, you sisters that are bringing food next Sunday, are y'all going to wake up Sunday morning and decide what you're bringing for lunch? You're going to start two or three days ahead of time. Most of you <clears throat> can bring your chicken and know ahead of time what to bring. Right? Yeah. Uh, and that devil sweat chip stuff that you make. Golly, that stuff's hot. Anyways, it's good though, isn't it? Um, it's hard for us to keep and maintain good habits. See, if I do something wrong, I need to say I'm sorry. If I break a window, I at least need to offer to pay for the window, correct? However, when the Lord says, I desired mercy and not sacrifice, let me, let me give you this illustration. Um, listening to, uh, I, I believe, I believe that the show was called Freakonomics. It was a, a radio it's a podcast thing on the radio where they look at the mathematical side of everything. I think this is where I heard this from. If not, it's still true. Um, daycares. Daycares have agreed that uh, if you don't get off work till 5 o'clock and your children get out of school at 3.30, something like that, 3 o'clock, that they will keep your children until you can get off work. But they close at, say, 6 o'clock. You need to be here by 6. Don't be late. Well, 
Just because I get off work at 5 or I'm supposed to get off work at 5 don't mean I actually will. And just because I do actually leave the office at 5, that don't mean that I'm going to be right at your place at 5.01. Some people are bad at timing. They have terrible at judging time. And just because I get off work at 5, that don't mean that everybody else in Birmingham is off work at 5, which they probably are. And then pretty soon you're going to have some dummy who's trying to take up a space in a lane where somebody else is taking up a space, and now we're all delayed. You, you, working parents, you know how this compounds and this, this builds up. Well, then this daycare, this specific daycare that they were uh, looking at, is tired of all their parents being late. So then they send a notice to the parents saying, uh, we're now going to have to start charging you an extra fee, $10, $15, $50. It doesn't matter what the fee would have been. We're going to charge you an extra fee for being late. And they found out that the parents were more late. Because they eased their conscience by saying, I paid for my sins with an extra $50. And it made the situation worse. This is why the Lord says, I desired mercy and not sacrifice. Sometimes we think we've paid ourselves out of this because we've done step one, step two, step three. I stopped short earlier when I was uh, quoting to you Hosea 13 because reading over the book, this is, this is the one verse that really got me and hung on me a little bit. Because he said, O Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself. But what does the next half of that verse say? But in me is thy help. Hmm, boy. Isn't that something? He says, in me is thy help. In me is thy hope. There's, there's a phrase in here in chapter 2. Chapter 2, uh, notice for me verse 15. He says, I will, uh, well, verse 14, he says, Therefore, will, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak comfortably unto her. Uh, the Lord is, is talking how he will graciously and gradually and quietly you know, address his bride. If we could deal with all problems in our life this way, our problems would go away a lot better that bring them into the wilderness in a place of quiet and in a place of solitude and speak of these things. Not in the public square yelling at one another. That's the illustration that he's given here. And then he says in verse 15, and I will give her her vineyards from thence. And notice this phrase, the valley of Achor for a door of hope. What is the valley of Achor? Does anybody know what the valley of Achor is? You do know what this is. You remember in Joshua chapter 7, when they go up to fight the city of Ai, and Israel just absolutely gets slaughtered. And Joshua comes back and pleads before the Lord, what happened here? And it's there in Joshua chapter 7 that they realize there's a man by the name of Achan, who when they went in to invade this city, had stolen a goodly Babylonian garment and a wedge of gold, and he took them and he hid it under his tent in the ground. The Lord had told him. Don't touch any of the city. Just burn it down and walk away. 
But no, Achan goes in there and he steals these things and he brings them home. Where are you going to wear this Babylonian garment, Achan, in the city of Israel? Where are you going to wear this thing and people not know what you're doing? How are you going to spend all this gold? Everybody else knows you're poor. No, you didn't. Daddy didn't leave you any money. You didn't marry into it. Where'd you come up with all this gold from? Well, when it's found out that it's Achan in Joshua 7, they bring him and his entire family and all his sheep and all his oxen and everything he has. They bring it out to the yeah. out to the spot and they stone him. And they bury him there in what is called the Valley of Achor. What happens next? When the sin is dealt with in the camp, Israel goes forth to Ai, and it's a great victory for Israel. From a practical standpoint, when sin is dealt with in your life, your next step can be victorious. But until you or I deal with the practical nature of sin in our life, we're going to be a constant failure. From an eternal standpoint, sin in the camp was dealt with not in you, not in me, but in the Lord Jesus Christ when He hung upon Calvary's cross and God poured out on Him His vengeance and His wrath for all the idolatry and all the adultery and all the whoremongering that His people have gone through for all the centuries when He poured it out on Christ and buried Him in the ground. Our next step. We will only see the face of God in peace. Because the wrath of God upon an evil and adulterous generation was satisfied in the person of Christ and the person of Christ alone. We have destroyed ourselves, haven't we? God has ample reason to never look at us ever again. But it's like, it's like he just can't get away from being gracious. My love for my family and my love for you, my love for the people I work with, is often conditional. Your love for me is often conditional. You happy I'm here? Let me put it this way. Well, sometimes it's all right. You know, I mean, some of things are fairly fine. You happy I'm here? Suppose I come here next week and, and I start denying the Trinity. Suppose I come here the week after that and I start denying the virgin birth. Suppose I come here the week after that and I start saying there is no hell. Suppose I come here after that and say, if you want to be saved, you need to come up front, uh, accept Jesus Christ as your Savior in order to be saved. What are you going to do with me? Run me out of, out of town on a rail real quick, right? Your appreciation and love for me has an end. Praise God, His appreciation for us and His love for us does not end. Our hope is in Him who is perfect. The last thing I want to leave you with is what's said in, in chapter 14. Because the Lord does tell His people to return and repent. Um, and there may, be a, there may be a time in your life that repentance is getting getting rid of some things. Now, he is not telling you to repent in order to get your home in heaven. I hope, 
I hope you know I understand this. I hope you understand this. You know I'm a primitive Baptist or I'm at least leaning in that way, right? Notice what he says to them, though. In, in your practical lives and in your repentance. Sometimes it is throwing away and tearing down the statues in your life that get between you and God. But the Bible says that our righteousnesses, this is Isaiah 65, verse 6. He doesn't say that our people quote this wrong all the time. Isaiah 65, 6 does not say, it does not say our righteousness is as filthy rags. It says our righteousnesses. Your righteousness comes from Christ. That's not a filthy rag. That is a great and grand white garment. Your righteousnesses. The work of your hands presented to God is a filthy rag. Notice what he says here. O Israel, return unto the Lord thy God, for thou hast fallen by thine iniquity. So the next time you pray, take this with you. Verse 2. Take with you words and turn to the Lord and say unto him, take away all iniquity and receive us graciously. So will we render the calves of our lips? You know, sometimes I think that can be our, our greatest prayer to the Lord. Lord, we're here before you today. We're trying to worship you in spirit and in truth. The only way that you're going to be able to look at us and be pleased is if you look at us through the blood of Christ. I might have prepared. I might have not prepared. I might have gotten up early and been here earlier. I might have gotten up late and gotten here late. I don't know. I might have gotten up early and gotten here late. That certainly has happened a number of times. But I say this. There's only one thing that will please the Lord. And that's if he takes away the iniquity. And if he receives us graciously. And that's really our only hope. That's my only hope every day. That God looks at me graciously. That's your only hope every day. That God looks at you graciously. That God looks at you through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. That blood that never gets old. That blood that never is defiled. That blood that never goes away. That blood that was shed for you in on the cross is the reason that the hopeless Hosea thank you for your good and patience and